Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm joined today by Robin Artizan. Hope I did my Spanish pronunciation well there. Two-time New York Times bestselling author of Shut Up and Run and Strong Mama. She's also vice president of fitness programming and head instructor at Peloton. And Robin believes that sweat can transform one's life. And her personal story is clearly living proof of that. So, Robin, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that intro, Corey. You said my name perfectly. <laughs> oh, thank you. I was like, you know, I can't mess up that that pronunciation. So <laughs> had to get it right. So thank you. You know, your the two books I mentioned previously, I feel like we should at least tap into them because they all kind of chronicle your your journey, so to speak. So your first one was Shut Up and Run. Mm-hmm. And that was more like what, just a beat was like a, a beginner's guide to taking on marathons. What was that one about? Yeah, I guess it's twofold. It's part training manual, anything from beginner to experienced athlete. I actually have 5k, a 5k training plan all the way up to a 50 mile ultra marathon training plan. So it's pretty unique in the running category in that regard. And then it's part memoir, part coffee table book. You know, it's filled with a lot of, yeah, I believe we're always having visual conversations with the world. I love art and I'm a city runner. So New York city plays a a big role in the, in the visual imagery. But yeah, that's, that's kind of shut up and run. It's, it's a manifesto to uncomplicate what I found to be very, very, be an overwhelming entry into movement, into running. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not a five minute mile. I don't have all the track gear. I wasn't, you know, captain of the track squad in high school. And um, I would show up to races and sometimes not feel like I found my flow or my groove. And um, ultimately I did ended up, fi- ended up finding that in New York City and as a marathoner and ultra marathoner. And I wanted to write something that would allow folks to feel like they belonged and to uncomplicate it for people. Yeah, because it can be very intimidating. You know, I have friends who took this on to become marathoners and it took them a couple of years maybe to even get to where they wanted to go. But I looked at the whole process. I was like, oh my gosh, like if I show up, I'd be like that kid, like on the playground who doesn't get picked at kickball. Yeah, nobody wants to feel that. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> so, so thank you for writing that book. Uh, and you also talk about the difference between marathoning and ultra marathoning. So what is ultra marathon? So a marathon is traditionally or is defined as 26.2 miles and an ultra marathon is anything farther than that. So it might be a 50 K, which is around 31 miles, 50 miles, a hundred miles, 200 miles. I mean, the, the endurance community is incredible and creative and thinking about new challenges all the time. So there's probably a new ultra marathon I haven't even read about yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's so amazing. I mean, cause it's like just to get started for some people just to go a mile in itself is, you know, really a great accomplishment, but then to go that much farther of that distance is to me, it seems unfathomable, but you know, who knows my, I may have a Who knows reinvention. what finish lines are in your future. Right. <laughs> I may like you have a reinvention coming up on the horizon. You never know. And so then strong, Mama, that one, I got to tell you, I was reading it and I felt like I've never seen anything like it first. 
the fact that you were talking, you were chronicling like your fitness regime and your life to your child who was yet not born yet. And you're chronicling what you're doing along that journey of wellness, of preparedness, of getting ready for the big reveal when the child is born. So that inspiration there, what inspired you to write that book? Yeah. So Strong Mama was written during my pregnancy with my first baby, Athena. We didn't know what we were having, but she was my little training partner. And I really, I was very fortunate to have an active pregnancy. I considered myself an athlete who happened to be pregnant. And um, I took Athena along for the journey, right? And so I also was very conscious of the fact that when baby is here, how are we going to talk about self-care? How am I going to prioritize my own workouts and movement practices in a way that is age appropriate? And so she understands. And now, you know, a few years later, Athena's almost two. She knows when I'm literally, I'm lacing up my sneakers and she comes up to give me a besito and she goes, bye-bye, run, mama, run, mm. you know? And so she gets it. And so I think that it's possible for us to support the leaders in our, in our community and our households and caregivers to prioritize their own movement practices because I'm so much of a better partner to my husband and mother to Athena because I, I trained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. good for my physical health and my mental health. When you talk about the, the act of movement and somehow it seems um, in one way, very simplistic and another way, it seems almost like, well, what does that mean? It seems cryptic. And, mm, oh, and so yeah. there's a, there's a combination <laughs> of both there. So I would love to know, like, what do we mean by, you know, just get out there and begin movement for wellness. So what does that actually look like? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you mentioned kind of the specificity and the kind of broad definition is it, it's moving your body intentionally in a way that has pride on the other side. Mm. Right. And so for someone that might look like, I mean, for me, actually my, the beginning of my running journey started really humbly. I was in law school at the time and I saw a pair of dusty shoes in my closet. And for some reason I was grabbing my car keys and I thought, I'm going to walk to campus today. And I think that was about a mile. It took me like 30 minutes. And I just told myself one more block, one more block, one more block. And that started it. Mm. And I got really curious about like, oh, well, what can I do? Maybe I'll sign up for a 5K and maybe I'll, you know, and you just start dabbling. You start getting curious. That was my running journey. And then that turned to, into like the pretty, <laughs> pretty robust running mm-hmm. um, hobby, I would say, it's into a career. And I think when we release ourselves from other people's expectations of what movement mm. practices need to look like, that's when we can infuse it with a little bit more curiosity and play. So I say get curious instead of judgmental. Mm. And is it the walk around a block? Is it the yoga class? Is it a Peloton class with me? You know, and you can see, oh, what what's your, your neighbor doing? What's your girlfriend doing? What's your mom doing? And maybe that sparks something in you. But I also think sometimes, especially on Instagram and stuff, we see these people and it's like, oh my God, did everybody run a marathon before 5 a.m.? Like, like I, haven't, I haven't even had a coffee, you know? Right, so right. I, I get it. It can be really intimidating, but I always say start with one and lead with curiosity rather than judgment. But for me, my, my personal movement practice is uh, six days a week. I, I mean, I, I train at a pretty high level, a few hours a day, two to three hours a day. I teach Peloton four days a week, on average, four to five days a week, cycling, strength, and running. Um, and then on top of that, I have my own heavy lifting, barbell work, some mobility work, and and running. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's so important, too, I have to say, because for me, 
I'm a man of a certain age. And my partner is a man of a certain age, even a little older than me. And we just were talking lately about like, you know, we have to take this seriously, especially because we're older. And it's even more difficult, you know, with weight gain as you get older and just the stamina to really work out. So I was really looking forward to having this conversation too, because it's one of those things where a lot of people are like me. We know we need to do it and we don't know where to begin or how to start. It can be so overwhelming. So I like to say, break it down into nibbles of hustle. So it's like, what's something you could do for five minutes that you know you could do five minutes every day for one week? And you might think, oh my God, but that's so easy. Like, yeah, okay, I can walk for five minutes. So it's like, do the thing you know you can do and establish the consistency because that turns on something in our brains. Like chemically, it changes us to know people are are always on the hunt for motivation. Motivation is the wrong thing to seek. It's the action and it's the consistent action that creates the momentum. The momentum creates the motivation. So I would rather someone take a very simple, simple action, like literally set a timer for five minutes and walk around the block or, you know, do walk around your apartment. You know, it doesn't even matter where you're going, but it's the act of doing something every day. Like think about something that we do without thinking. You brush your teeth in the morning, you brush your teeth at night. We have created a ritual and a routine around that because that's just what we do. And it is absolutely possible to do that with a fit, with a fitness routine. And then once you've started to build like the foundation of the house, then you start to add the second layer and the third floor and the paint on the walls. And I say like the paint on the walls, that's the flourish. That's the, on Mondays I do this. And on Tuesdays I do Pilates. And on Wednesday I meet my girlfriend for this. And then that's when you start to add the other elements. But when we overcomplicate it too soon, it can be a little tricky. And I do encourage folks to find their power posse, you know, in, in this age of digital connection, you can find almost any kind of group into some, into something that you're into. And that can really help because then you're kind of using that community to stay accountable. I love that advice. Yeah. Just a little bit at a time. I think you're right. People like new year's Eve is a prime example, right? You always get these grandiose, like, um, resolutions, like I'm going to, and then they yeah. go out and like, like spend like a thousand dollars on new groceries yep. that they throw out like four days later because everything's spoiled, uh, fruits and vegetables, you know? So yeah, I keep doing that every year. So I'm going to definitely implement this new advice that you're giving, which is not new, I guess that's actually, well, no, works. yeah, it's not new. And I think, but I also think start with one practice. So there's something called keystone habits. They're habits that if we focus our energies into building them, they prop up other areas in our lives, right? So yes, we know it's like sleep hygiene, water intake, the food in your fridge, the how you're moving. We know that that's like, those are the the recipe for the thing that we're creating. But each of those for some of us can be very complicated. So the keystone, so exercise is a keystone habit. If you develop a consistent movement practice, the five minutes a day, and then five minutes will turn into 10 minutes, and then 10 minutes turns into 15. I care much more about what somebody's willing to do consistently 10,000 times than what someone does for a week and then flames out, right? I don't want you training four hours on Saturday and then never again for six months, right? right? right. So the keystone habit of exercise then impacts 
after you kind of, you know, there's a little uptick, you know, the first few weeks of anything you can, you're kind of like in your head and like, oh gosh, it's going to feel hard. Like a chore. Yeah. At first. But then at first, but then your body and your mind are like, oh, okay, this is what we do now. This is what we do. You know, and you start to see the adaptations a little bit. You do have more energy. You sleep better. So then this is the ripple effect, right? It's like, oh, okay. Like, now maybe I'm reaching for the glass of water. Maybe I'm making more intentional choices at lunch, right? So like that is how we scaffold these other things. But I really do think it starts with one. And I, I think a movement practice as a keystone habit is huge. Wow. I mean, first of all, for you, I mean, because you are like literally like that woman who knows all this <laughs> stuff. So I'm not even going to second guess it. I'm like five minutes a day, Robin said. Like I'm, I'm on it, mama. Okay, I'm on it. I promise. <laughs> Thank you. No, because I really, I mean, you know, I, I always say to myself, like, I want to be like, I want to be like a badass 60 year old when I get there. I don't want to be like, you know, yeah. you know, so, and I have friends who are thriving for the first time in areas like um, fashion getting discovered on the streets at like 60 because they're fit. And, you know, these amazing stories. I'm like, you know, yeah, there's work to be done that I can do it for my own personal best. Yeah. So, well, it's not too late. It's, I just saw this meme on Instagram, like Christian Dior started his fashion house at 40 something years old, like these people reinventing at forties, fifties, sixties, you know, I always say it's not too late. You're not too old. It's not too cold out. Like okay. go live your life right There's now. Coats. Like yeah. let's do it right now. Right. Okay. <laughs> After this interview, honey, I'm running to the gym. I promise. Uh, but you know, but that also brings me to your current book though. Strong baby, strong baby actually is great as we had well, in correlation to this discussion, because this establishes that fitness mindset in a child early on. So in the previous book, you're sort of, you know, you're almost like chronicling it for your child prior to their birth so that you can kind of share the journey with them after they're born. But this one seems very deliberate in establishing a healthy fitness mindset to the child early on. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't discover movement until I was an adult. I was literally in law school when I went for that first walk. I was the kid who would do anything to get out of gym class. I was just petrified. I was like, dodgeball, no way. Like, I just really told myself the story that I wasn't an athlete. And I rewrote that story for myself as an adult but I don't, I don't want, you know, I don't want kids to have to wait that long. I want them to know that they are innate movers just as they are, just as they were made and create themselves to be. And kids really are innate athletes, like in their first crawls and stumbles and steps, they have amazing body awareness. But more than that, I want strong babies to realize the strength that, that, that even the smallest in our household have. So it's an, it's a wonderful celebration for a movement for the whole family, but also a celebration of little ones that like when they fall down, we get back up and resiliency is a value worth celebrating. Right. Yes. And people, that's great. You brought that up because people look at you and the assumption is, oh my gosh, like she kind of like was born with a six pack. Like she's, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how you would assume because you are this brand and you eat, sleep and breathe it. But I love that you raised that point that you actually were not, uh, necessarily into fitness before, but it was also tied to a diagnosis that I, I watched one of your videos. You mentioned the diagnosis of diabetes. Yes. And how that changed your, 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 yeah. So speak about that, please. Yeah. So actually not many people know this, but two weeks before I started at Peloton, I was feeling fatigued. I was feeling really thirsty. My energy levels were 
were off. I was like waking up to pee six, seven times a night. I just knew something was wrong. And my mother was a, is a doctor and she said, we got to get some blood work done. So I got blood work done on like a Monday morning and honey, by Monday afternoon, I had a doctor calling me like, you got to come in endocrinologist. I never had an endocrinologist before. Like it was all just so wild. And yeah. And she told me you're a type one diabetic. Your pancreas doesn't produce insulin. And more common is type two, which is, you know, lifestyle, some lifestyle and eating choices could contribute to insulin resistance, but insulin resistance is insulin resistance. And for me, I take, I have to take insulin every day. I have to think like a pancreas and use technology to help prop up the lifestyle that I've created for myself. I was already running ultra marathons when I was diagnosed with type one. And the first question I asked my endocrinologist was, was, okay, so how am I running this ultra marathon in three weeks? Right. Yeah. You were focused on the fitness still. And she was like, what are you talking about? You know, so there were definitely doubters in the medical community. I mean, I've done very uncommon things, but I also believe in living a life that's uncommon. And self-pity is poison. It gets poisonous. So if I would have sat in that place of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I'm so healthy. I'm doing these races. I changed my life. I'm doing this thing. And now this, it's like, it's okay to express it. It's okay. It's important to acknowledge it. Those feelings of frustration, but an anger and hurt. But are you going to live in that place? That's so unhealthy. That's like putting bricks in your own backpack and then trying to go for a run, you know? So I had to, I had to really release myself from that and just focus on what I could control. So I said, okay, I'm going to educate myself. I'm a one woman science experiment. I've got races. I'm going to pick up weights. I'm going to figure it out. Some days, you know, they're middle of a workout. My insulin, you know, my glucose, my blood sugar is dropping. And it's like, okay, what are you going to eat? Okay, drink a smoothie. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it's like always pivot, 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 remain solution oriented and focus on what you can control. Yes, yes, yes. Because, you know, when I was reading a lot about your path after that happened and how you were, how that got diagnosed right as you were sort of in your greatest shape you were like yeah already fit and people would be very confused by diagnosis like that because on the surface you look like like the perfect example of health and you never know what's going on internally mm-hmm. and so what i think is amazing about that is like people i've noticed i say the successful people i've interviewed over the years on the show or had conversations with they always have these common denominators successful leaders And one of the main ones, you just mentioned it, it was the ability to pivot in a time of adversity. Yeah. And that makes all the difference in the world. Like, I think I saw you say, you know, I was either going to, I was going to crumble by this news or face it head on. And Mm -hmm. so that makes a difference. That that defines who we are when you decide to face something head on. Yes, absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad you did. Super. And so when it comes to when you left the law firm or your, your law practice, the obstacles there, I just wonder, what was it like for you transitioning from, okay, I'm a successful attorney and now I'm going to be a fitness star. Like, I mean, yeah. you didn't set out to <laughs> well, say it wasn't, that. I don't it think. wasn't a fitness, it certainly wasn't fitness stardom. I just, okay. So I was working 80 hours a week as a corporate litigator in New York city. I, I landed what I thought was my dream job. You know, I'm a broad Latina. My mother and my father put themselves through medical school and law school. Like literally my mom taught herself English by watching PBS. My dad. Oh, like, I love it. My dad's like the real life Goodwill hunting. He was a janitor at a CUNY school and they wouldn't accept him because he was terrible at like standardized tests. So he just started auditing classes. He just sat in the back and started taking these college classes. And the teachers were like, what are you doing? And he would hand in papers and everything. And he's like, listen, I'm he- I showed up to work three hours early so I could take your class. You know, That's it was wild. amazing. Yeah. So like he 
graduated from CUNY in New York, put himself through law school. So I grew up with these stories. Okay. So I put my, so, so I put myself in this position to succeed in a way that, you know, would make my parents proud. And they were really proud, but I realized that I was counting down the hour, the minutes, minutes till I could move, till I could go. My office uh, was right next to Central Park in New York City. And I would go some, some days I would only have 12 minutes and I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna lace up real quick, 12 minute jog, come back, back in the meeting, you know? So it was, it was a grind, but I realized that I was living for like just those few minutes a day. I'm like, how can that be? How can I be living for only a few minutes a day? So I felt like I was leading a divorced existence. Like the superhero, like takes on, puts on her cape mm-hmm. during the run and hangs it back up. And I started to plot and plan over like a two year process. I said, I got to figure out how to monetize my passion for, for fitness, for movement. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I set a calendar appointment for 10 minutes a day in the mornings before the day would get really busy and the partners would come into the office and everything. So I set 10 minutes and I thought, what the heck am I going to be able to do in 10 minutes? But I just forced myself. I would literally set a timer and like just sit there with my journal or sit there, you know, with the blank Google search bar and be like, what am I even looking for? So then I started Googling, like, what does an editor at a fitness magazine do? Like what? Like it just Mm. literally searching for anything, 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 anything of like, who makes money in movement? (laughs) And over two years, I started planting a lot of seeds. And that was when I got the opportunity. Well, I created the opportunity really two weeks before the London Olympics. uh, My friend lives in, lives in London. And she was like, Hey, the London games are happening. Like you can sleep on my couch if you want to come over here. So I said, okay, say less. So I, I booked a ticket on a, on a credit card cost more than my rent to go right. to London. <laughs> and I quit my, I quit my law job. I said, okay, I have to be there. I'm going to tell, I had already, I already created like Instagram and, and Twitter and a blog basically documenting from a social media perspective, this new life, this running life. So I was leading that divorce life. I was going for runs at 10 o'clock at night with like amazing artists in New York city. And like, there was this whole underbelly subculture of running that brands were starting to pick up on. And it was really underrepresented in the running community. You know, it wasn't a lot of BIPOC folk. Like it was just rogue running, you know? And unapologetically so. So that gave me the confidence to quit my law job. And it felt like a free fall. You know, you asked, what did it feel like? It felt like jumping off a cliff. And thankfully my family was really supportive. I think it helped that I was, li- you know, not living on their dime. You know, it was, I was obviously funding all of this my, all my, by myself, but I went to London and, um, I basically, I was interviewing athletes. I would like just beg PR agents. Like, can I please talk to so-and-so? And now some of these Olympic athletes are like my friends, you know, it's mm, wild the, the, the ways that, you know, we interact with folks who become important in our lives. And I just kept betting on myself and anyone who would listen, I'd be like, I want to write about running. I want to write. I want to tell stories about running. I want to, I want to just be in this space of movement. And <clears throat> I ended up getting a job while I was in London, I ended up getting a job with an agency whose client was Nike women. So I would be working on the social media account for Nike women as my client through the agency. And I did that job for about six months. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is my dream job. And I realized really quickly that I was getting so much more fulfillment storytelling around my experience in the ultra marathon world, my experience interacting with these amazing, you know, New York city bridge runners and running crews around the world. 
And brands were starting to pick up on that. So then I took a second leap. So it's like I quit the law job. And then six months later, I quit the, the agency job. And that felt even scarier because I thought I had what I wanted. But then I did a, a life audit. So I did an audit of how I was feeling physically, how I was feeling like kind of spiritually guided. And then the third was brass tacks, like financially, like what's what? Like rent has come in, like what what's happening here? So in that audit during that time period, I really was able to align on that I I was able to coach and storytell and do this thing that I'm doing now on on a public scale. And I was coaching runners. I, I started to write my book my first book, Shut Up and Run. And that was when Peloton came into the picture. I read about Peloton. I sent sent the company a cold email and I was like, we should be working together. So that's it. that's how it happened. But it was like drip, 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 like a lot of different little inflection points. I mean, drip, drip, drip. But there's so many lessons there that we always, again, try to talk to our community about in leadership lessons and trying to get young people and college age people in general to go out in the world and go for it. So there's a lot of fear there probably in all that you were going through with the free fall of like, how am I going to pay my rent? This was crazy. Am I, how, what am I going to do? Why am I doing this? But at the same time, you felt innately that it was going to happen. So I know you mentioned in one of your videos too, about fear is something that you kind of thrive on. You, yeah. say, you eat it for breakfast. Apparently. <laughs> I do. I just have donuts, but clearly <laughs> that's clearly why we're in different body positions. But, um, but talk about that though. I mean, how fear sort of, motivates and drives to be better? Well, I think nerves mean we care and fear is usually something that we're, that we need to pay attention to, right? Is it like a weakness that can turn into a strength? Is it something that we need to, you know, do we need to do a little more homework? Are we unprepared? You know, it's, it's, it's just an alarm bell goes off and I'm like, okay, how do I translate this. How do, I look at fear as something that it can be metabolized. You know what I mean? Like we don't know chemically like, okay, food metabolized, but I think emotions can be metabolized too. And I think mainly, mainly through movement, journaling, talk therapy, all that kind of stuff. Fear is a funny one. I decided, I think it was when I was training for, um, I had did five marathons in five days across Utah for charity for, for MS research. And I ran across the state of Utah. And when I was preparing for that, I was petrified. I posted it on social. I said I was doing it. And I was like, listen, I have these people sending money to this organization thinking I'm going to do this thing. And I was petrified. I literally didn't know if I could physically even do it. I was doing the training predominantly on my own. And it, this is when I was working at the agency. So I was, I was working a full-time job and doing this other stuff. And I, on one of my runs, I decided, what if I could like create a persona around fear, right? And it was like, I literally started to visualize like inviting fear in, sit on the couch. Like, what can I offer you to drink? You want a cup of tea? And it was like interrogating the fear. And it was like this conversation I was having with myself, like, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And then how are you going to prepare? And then how do you, you know, and it's just unpacking, taking the charge out of it. Um, helped for me. So I, I interrogate my fears. I interrogate my fears and then it takes the, it takes the charge out of it. And then I feel more in control. And then once you feel that momentum of control, then you start to take one action and one, then the next one and the next one. And I do believe action can really be 
an antidote to anxiety, like any, just take an action, like a something, send the email, write something down, put it in the calendar, like make one action, take mm-hmm. one action. And that focus, focus is a really, a really, really effective tool to get into fear. So thank you so much for sharing all that with us today. Robin Arzon, you are <laughs> awesome. And, um, you, and I appreciate you guys, like your whole team, what you're doing and what you're doing. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, mapping out my five minutes. Yes. Okay. You, oh yes. Schedule it. So schedule it. Like you have an appointment with yourself, literally like the most important po- appointment that you cannot negotiate from. Like that is crucial time. So put it in your calendar, tell your partner, your business, you know, whoever it is that is a stakeholder in your life. Be like, Hey, this really important thing I'm doing for five minutes every day this week. Keep me accountable. Let's, let's make, let's do it together, you know, because we are able to show up in other spaces more fully as ourselves when um, we've had that mind body connection. That's incredible. Thank you. Well, I will hold myself accountable to that <laughs> and, and make my best effort in 2023. And I'll let you know my progress. I yeah, I love that, Corey. Thanks for having me today. My pleasure, Robin Arzon. Thanks so much. And we really enjoyed having you as a guest today on Motivational Mondays. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.